Hello and welcome to 10 by 9, where nine people have up to 10 minutes each to tell a true story from their own life. I'm Paul Doran and this is the 10 by 9 podcast. We were back in our home venue, the Black Box in Belfast on Wednesday, April 26th, when the theme was bad and the stories were brilliant. There are three of them on this podcast for you. We worked hard in the day and laboured appropriately hard in the evenings at Leo's Bar, all busting for a pint of the black stuff at the end of a hard day's work. I longed for the day someone would say something to me just so I could use that famous Belfast phrase, do you know who my dad is? <laughs> on their rounds, the nurses would always ask each of us, on a scale of one to ten, how is your pain at the moment? I answered, not even one really, I'm grand. My neighbour always answered, (laughs) eleven. So we'll hear about the downsides of life as a class brain box, the downsides of life growing up in a toxic marriage, and the downsides of cancer treatment, even with a positive outlook. But just before we do, I want to do a shout out and a big thank you to our Patreon supporters who help keep us going month to month. Thanks to Mark McGrath, Paula Tabakin, Elizabeth Super, Eric Dubois, Michael Pendergast, Jane Prendy, Darius Whelan, Jacqueline Gale, The Killicks, Becky Ginnon family, and recent patron, Katie Whitehead. Some of you I know, some I don't. But thank you all so much. And thanks too to everyone who has donated over the years. We are so grateful. Thank you. Okay, on with the show, and we start with the first-timer, Cleana McCrory. Just for context, the Gaeltacht is an Irish-speaking area where many teenagers spend weeks every summer improving their command of the language. Or at least that's the idea. As Cleana makes clear, it doesn't always work out like that. The term stew as a description of a human being is a term unique to the Northwest in my experience. Most Irish food connoisseurs will of course be familiar with the term as a dish comprising a mix of potatoes, processed beef and root vegetables. Something which I will, as with most foods, smother in tomato ketchup, despite pushing 30. (laughs) I'm a stew. At school, I was a massive stew. Being beaten to the top of the class by a girl who was an even bigger stew than me was a yearly crushing disappointment. Stew is essentially a nicer term for nerd. (laughs) Geek. Dork. Dweeb. Poindexter. Stew. I feel I would also be extremely tasty smothered in ketchup. (laughs) Look, it's not necessarily an insult, but I doubt it's a glowing compliment either. I walked between classes wearing my purple thick-rimmed glasses, holding a ring-binder file thick with colour-coded, cross-referenced, poly-pocket-protected notes to my chest. I sat at the front, answering banal questions so very ardently that teachers got bored of my keenness and started to ignore my waving hand. <laughs> so, when I put myself forward to my Irish teacher to become a kinnera at the Gaeltacht, aged 18, a point in a sensible stew like me seemed like a straightforward decision for Sir to make. It would involve me being a mentor to 10 13-year-old girls for a 10-day stint, all staying with a ban of tea or housewife in her house, 
on rickety 70-year-old bunk beds and at the mercy of her cooking abilities. Fast forward to mid-July, post the main event. A Saturday afternoon, a phone call from an unknown number. It was Sir. Embarrassment clouds memories. They're hazy. The mind's busy trying to dump them like sewage in a river. But they rise to the surface as if to gloat before falling away. Phrases like, I'm not angry. <laughs> a simple mistake come to the fore. Before the rising nausea caused by sheer mortification takes over. For three days, I got on fantastically well at the Giltocht. Nervous initially, a key characteristic of any good stew. I became well acquainted with the other kinners quickly. We worked hard in the day and laboured appropriately hard in the evenings at Leo's Bar, which was a bustling hive of red-faced locals and college teachers, all busting for a pint of the black stuff at the end of a hard day's work. The fourth night set to be a big one and Claire, who had a car, helped us prepare appropriately. I stayed with Shannon and Kiara, and between the three of us, we requested a large bottle of Smyrnaf vodka. We were real connoisseurs back then. Two WKDs would have had me spilling my darkest secrets. As you remember, I was a stew, notoriously badass. We would sneak the vodka into the house we stayed in from the boot of Claire's car. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to West Donegal, but the older population tend to err on the extreme side of devout when it comes to Catholicism. <laughs> Our vanity was a very, very lovely and very, very God-fearing woman, no older than about 205. <laughs> so understandably, the house we were staying in was bedecked in crucifixes, cluttered with statues of Our Lady, and, of course... In the halls hung the Catholic classic, portraits of the Sacred Heart, plural. <laughs> this made the whole manoeuvre feel thrillingly anarchistic. A strangely covert operation for a group of women legally old enough to buy and consume alcohol. <laughs> Once we had acquired the goods, I stopped it off my hoodie in the trademark brown bag and walked extremely casually and not at all suspiciously through the kitchen and up the rickety back stairs. In hushed tones, like witches casting spells over our ill-begotten potion ingredients, we split the bottle between three inconspicuous plastic water bowls. Dandering back downstairs after an hour of sorting nightclub-appropriate hair and makeup, we announced our leave to the house. Embarrassment clouds memories indeed. But Volka does it better. Spending as little money as possible to get drunk was our aim, as a trio who hadn't even got our student loans in yet. So the vodka was mixed with Alka-Pops and knocked back. A mist begins to descend after one. Light and pleasant at first, in a way that blurs the edges and clouds inhibitions just slightly. With further drinks comes further mist. The mist is, however, followed by a dense, all-consuming fog, like driving over the Glenshane Pass in December. <laughs> you catch a slight glimpse of a flash of colour from the car in front, just for a second or two, and it's gone. The minibus journey to Doolan's Club. Trying not to vomit over the person beside you. <laughs> Who were you beside? 
Who knows? <laughs> Sliding down the pebble dash wall outside after a run into the bathroom on arrival. Cara coming over to make sure you're all right. Then black. Waking up on an unfamiliar chintz armchair, surrounded by the munchery and the teachers. Utter confusion. Then, the realisation that what needed to happen right there and then was for the earth to reach up its molten lava-clad arms and take you down into its core of bubbling magna, never to return. Happily swallowed whole and melting away. The fog was lifting when all I wanted for, was for it to consume me again. My parents had been contacted. <laughs> My time was up after only a few days. <laughs> Better it happen now where you have people to look after you than when you're over on your own in England at college. <laughs> and the boss's disappointment was evident as he spoke to my mother, whilst I tore off across the grounds to vomit for the sixth time. Look forward now, not back. Forward now, not back, said the kind banatee as I collected my things. Um, she'd seen a few similar stories in her 176 years, I was sure. <laughs> my dad drove down, and my mum, who took the call from the principal, insisted he stay in the car. Say nothing, she strictly instructed. I've told him you've got a stomach bug. Dodgy months in the stew. volume of Heinz tomato ketchup would salvage this particular stew. Eleven years later, I still don't have the heart to tell my poor dad the truth. Thank you so much, Cleona. Your mum is a star. Absolutely. And the dad still doesn't know. So... I'm going to put it on the podcast, though. <laughs> uh, let's hope your dad can see the funny side of it. And let's hope he enjoys the podcast. Garmi Agat Kleena. And if, like Kleena, you have a story to tell, or even just an idea for a story, then get in touch at 10by9.com. Or contact us through our social media channels. That's the usual places, Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Okay, on to our next story, and it's another first-timer. Just be warned, the story includes domestic violence, so if that's not for you, then skip on. But it's a fantastic story from Carrie Wilson. I've woken to a loud bang. I run to my parents' bedroom, and there on the floor lies my mother with a wardrobe on top of her. Go back to bed, love, says my dad, so off I go. It's 1990. I'm seven years old and the scene I've just witnessed is almost normal to me. Mum, Dad and me were living in a three-bedroom house in a peaceful little village in the countryside. My aunt, uncle and cousins lived in the house attached to ours, which we loved as we were more like siblings than cousins. We classed our village as a large family, adults socialising in the local pub, then back to each other's kitchens where the drink continued to flow and Dr Hook played into the early hours. The kids all played together. The older we got, drank together. We would sneak into the adults' parties, steal whatever drink we could, and creep out unnoticed. A new neighbour had recently moved into a bungalow across from our house. The older man was friendly, and we let us drink in his, supplying us with alcohol and cigarettes. I'm a massive Elvis fan, so it pains me to say our neighbour really was the devil in disguise. 
A year and a half passed at the hands of the monster before one day the bungalow lay empty. By this time I had a little sister and my family had just moved to the city to be closer to my grandparents and dad's other friends. Dad and his friends were well known and respected. He was a joker and always had a smile on his face. People would come in and out of our house day and night. And even though I was very young, it didn't take long to realise this was due to paramilitary involvement. The only time Dad wasn't <coughs> smiling was when the house phone rang or a carload of his friends pulled up. His face would drop, he'd give us a kiss in the head, a silent nod and he'd walk out the door. I remember taking on well in school, so they rang home and asked for me to be collected. Within 10 minutes, there was Dad with a carload of men like something out of a mafia movie, ready to pick me up. I wasn't even embarrassed because they were so well known, I never got bullied. I longed for the day someone would say something to me, just so I could use that famous Belfast phrase, do you know who my dad is? <laughs> the older kids in the estate looked out for me, and in turn, I looked out for my friends. Dad liked to party while mum worked nights, and I looked after my sister. He enjoyed a drink, but mum hated it when he came home drunk, as arguments would start most of the time, ending in violence. Mum knew how to push his buttons, and this resulted in him hurting her, something she never deserved. He never lifted a hand to mirror my sister, but one night will forever haunt me. A few of Dad's friends had been murdered in a short space of time, and he had begun drinking more than ever. I was in bed when I heard screaming from downstairs, I ran down and seen Dad had Mum by the hair in the hallway. When he seen me, he let go. She crawled through the kitchen and out the door as Dad made his way into the living room where he sat in his armchair. Without even thinking, I went straight to Dad to check he was okay. I'd always been a daddy's girl, but as I looked at the floor, I noticed a trail of blood from the living room through the hall to the back door. At this point, I ran outside where I found my beautiful mother lying on the cold ground, shaken and barely recognisable. I knelt down beside her as her neighbour, who heard the commotion, had ran inside to ring an ambulance. One of Dad's friends, who was walking home after a night out, stopped in horror as he seen Mum. Did he do this? he asked. Mum couldn't respond and he quickly made his way down the street with Mum on her way to the hospital. I went back inside to Dad, who was still in his chair, as white as a ghost. There was a bang on the door. The police were here, or so I thought. I looked out the window, and there stood Dad's friend, who had passed Mum and I, along with three other of Dad's close friends. As I opened the door, I realised two of them were holding baseball bats. I already knew what was about to happen, and as I kicked and screamed, one of Dad's friends held me in the hallway while he was visibly upset himself. I overheard the words, you know this has to happen. Dad's response was, close the door, keep the child out. The sound of the bats hitting Dad's legs seemed to go on forever before his friends walked out with their heads bowed and I was re released to run and comfort him. My mum was in hospital having surgery for her injuries. Dad was recovering from the beating and I was two days away from starting my first day of second year of high school. A week later, mum returned home and apart from the obvious bruising, it was as if nothing had happened. Another of Dad's friends had been murdered and he continued to drink until he became unwell and had to go into hospital for surgery. 
Although my parents' relationship was toxic, they loved each other very much and he couldn't wait to get back home. When the call came through, I was so excited to get back up and visit him. Only this time was different. Mum rang the immediate family in tears, saying we needed to get to the hospital right away. Me, Mum, my nanny and granda, Dad's three brothers and two sisters got there quickly and were taken to the family room. I didn't understand what was happening, but with my family's reactions, I knew it was bad. We spent the next few days sitting around his hospital bed while he was hooked up to lots of machines that would soon be slowly turned off. Exactly three weeks before my 14th birthday, Dad passed away at the age of just 31. How did this happen? He was so excited to come home, and now he was gone. It would take years of missing medical notes before we would get answers. The hospital, the people we trusted with his life, had ended it. Dad had taken a turn for the worst, and his consultant had gone home. When contacted by the junior doctor in training, his reply was, I'm already home, do what you've been taught. The junior doctor was pressured into performing his first surgery and panicked. He inflated the balloon, but forgot the most vital part. He forgot to turn on the screen to see where he was inflating it, resulting in him ripping my dad's gullet and causing him to bleed to death. Did dad make mistakes in life? Absolutely. Was he an angel? Absolutely not. One thing he was, though, was very much loved. He was a partner, a dad, son, a brother, and a friend of many. The hundreds of people who lined the streets to say their goodbyes, the sympathy cards that filled our house from across Belfast, the Mays prison and beyond, showed how loved and respected he was. He never got the chance to meet his grandchildren, but they all knew about their granda. Well, everything they need to know anyway. He wasn't bad. He was my dad. Gary, thank you so much. What a difficult story to hear and to tell, but important too. I hope you'll be back at 10 by 9 with more stories. Okay, on to our third and final story on this week's podcast. And we'd not seen or heard from him for a while. And it'll become obvious why that was. But we were delighted to welcome back Paul Bond. The elderly lady was behind me at the checkout in Flemings. The super value in the true centre of the universe. Also referred to as Monaghan. <laughs> I recognised her. She was one of my mum's old friends. But due to three years of COVID, I hadn't seen her in a while. Hello, Mrs. Golden. She looked at me quizzically for a moment and then smiled. You're one of the Bonds. Yes. Were you the one with... She looked from side to side and then whispered, Cancer. Yes. You're looking very well. How are you now? Grant. I laughed a little when I got back to the car. The last time I'd had a similar conversation was when we moved back to Monaghan from Belfast many moons ago. I bumped into someone in the village whom I hadn't seen in ages. Paul, you home for the weekend? No, we moved back a wee while ago. Whereabouts? Just out past Murray's fireplaces. Are you near that nice, he lowered his voice, Protestant family? <laughs> that moved from Belfast. Where? Beside Rosaline McMahon's. That's us. Are you Protestants now? 
not officially, no. Uh, we got our parish envelopes through the letterbox the next day. I mentioned this to my soulmate when I got home, and she said that a friend's mother had recently bumped into her, and talking about an old school friend, she said, Do you remember Jacinta? My soulmate replied that she did. Did you know she's a lesbian? Now, <laughs> married and all to another lesbian. <laughs> of these hushed topics, cancer, Protestantism, and lesbianism, it may surprise you to know that cancer is the only one I can speak about with any authority, <laughs> despite a lot of research in the other two fields. <laughs> My cancer arrived as a bit of a surprise, but nothing to be overly concerned about until after my initial operation in the Bon Secours in Dublin to remove a small tumour from my bladder. It turned out to be larger than they had thought and in fact was something to worry about. That day was indeed a bad day, or rather the bit where I walked from my consultant's office to our car and told my soulmate that they were going to have to remove my bladder. And the next wee bit where we hugged and cried a little wasn't great. But after that, and a stop at Apple Green for a Burger King Chicken Royale, <laughs> we rationalised that we were in good hands, soon to be in better hands, and there's no point worrying too much. My new consultant, Dilly Little, met us in Beaumont and booked me in the following week for a thorough examination and an overnight stay. I checked in at 7am a few days later, was knocked out, and they did whatever they felt necessary, and I assume legal to me, to determine the next course of action. The ward I woke up in contained four beds and two other occupants. The gentleman across from me was polite and kind, but moaned about absolutely everything. The pain was bad, painkillers were bad, the food was bad, and the sleeping was bad. We all got regular attention. There hardly seemed to be 10 minutes past, day or night, without a nurse, doctor or care assistant checking in on one of us. This wasn't enough for my neighbour. No sooner had a nurse left him than he'd be on the buzzer looking for something else, which was invariably a stronger painkiller. On their rounds, the nurses would always ask each of us, on a scale of 1 to 10, how is your pain at the moment? 1 is not too bad, 10 is very bad. I answered, not even one really, I'm grand. My neighbour always answered, 11. <laughs> when the nurses would finish their rounds, my neighbour would call out, Paul, how are you? And I'd say, grand. And he would immediately ask, they're gone, how are you really? And he would look disappointed with it and say, grand, grand. My consultant, Miss Little, came round and said that she wanted me to stay an extra night or two as she wanted me to have a nephrostomy which is a little tube into your kidney to alleviate pressure. She asked how I was with that idea, and I said, grand. My only concern was having to listen to my neighbour complain to everyone for another night, but he was now excited at the prospect of me undergoing surgery and experiencing some of his torment. I was wheeled down early the next morning for what turned out to be a relatively straightforward procedure, which took place under a local anaesthetic and also accompanied by the only time in medical treatment history that they were playing decent music in the background. <laughs> Sweet Jane from the Velvet Underground's Loaded. 
I was wheeled back up an hour or two later and my neighbour was giddy with excitement and could hardly wait for the nurse to ask me. On a scale, one, I answered. When they left, he hobbled over to me. Are we really? Two procedures in two days, tough and grand. He scowled and his left eye started to blink uncontrollably. <laughs> you can't be grand all the time. But I was, and I am. I had 16 weeks of chemotherapy after that, and then had my left kidney, bladder and prostate removed. Throughout it all, I was constantly in awe and quite overwhelmed by all of the care, love and attention I received from every single person I met. At each chemo trip up to Beaumont, I brought some cream buns from Dinkins for the staff on the ward, and on one occasion a doctor had asked me about the book I was reading, which was Lincoln in the Bardo, so I sent him one via Amazon. A month later, he sought me out to ask why I'd done that, and I said, because I could. He thanked me profusely, and I started to cry. Here were these people doing everything they could to save me, and I bought them a few buns and one book, and I was being thanked. I cried again in the car when I tried to tell my soulmate about it. Before I went in for my major operation, I treated myself to some radiohead pyjamas, and it gave me a... It gave me a huge lift in my weakened state after the operation when I was struggling to walk the length of a very small corridor when every doctor and nurse would say, cool pyjamas. <laughs> I have to admit that after the operation, I did answer differently when they asked on a scale of one to 10 for the pain. I might have said seven or eight on one or two occasions, even when I was on morphine. But whenever I was asked how I was, I always answered, grand. I was terrified when they came to remove the morphine drip, thinking I wouldn't cope with the pain and wondering if I judged my former neighbour too harshly. But when they went to remove it, they discovered that it had actually snagged in something 10 hours previously <laughs> and had been merrily leaking onto one of my pillows. There was only one day when I'd been in hospital for the seventh or eighth day after the operation and I couldn't really eat very much and more importantly hadn't had the magic post-op poo that they were all asking about. <laughs> when a couple of nurses asked, how are you today? And I answered, not too bad. She looked at me in alarm, checked my temperature, blood pressure, <laughs> pulse and asked the other nurse to call for a doctor. <laughs> now I was alarmed and asked what's wrong. You're the grand fella. <laughs> you never say bad, so it must be something serious. I explained that I was embarrassed to say that it was only my frustration at the lack of a motion. <laughs> that was annoying me. And yes, I did whisper, motion. <laughs> she went away and came back with a carton of prune juice. Don't drink it all at once, she warned me. I got home on day nine. They insisted on taking me out to the car in a wheelchair, but I didn't want my soulmate to see me in it. So when I spotted her car, I asked if I could stand. Are you sure you'll be okay? He asked. Yes, I replied. And seeing her run towards me added, I'll be grand. That was grand, Paul, truly grand. Thank you so much for coming back to 10 by 9. You were missed.
And that is it for this podcast. Check out all the 10 by 9 dates on our website, 10 by 9com including some special events. And keep in touch with us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Maybe think about giving the podcast a review or rating at a podcast app. It's very helpful if you can. And tell as many people as you can about 10 by 9 and the podcast. Thanks to everyone who made this week's 10 by 9 happen. Margaret and Leanne. Podrig, who co-founded this with me. The wonderful people at The Black Box who've been our supporters for 12 years. The incredible audience and all our storytellers. But especially, Cleena McCrory, Carrie Wilson and Paul Bond. I'm Paul Doran and I'll be back with another podcast soon. But for now, bye bye. <laughs>